You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about congenital syphilis. The Pennsylvania Department of Health is reporting the highest number of syphilis cases in over 30 years. In 2022, the Pennsylvania Department of Health, or PADOH, reported 13 cases of congenital syphilis and a total of 1,600 cases of early syphilis exclusive of Philadelphia. We know that this is important as pediatricians because syphilis infection can result in stillbirth, prematurity, or a wide spectrum of clinical manifestations. In order to learn more about congenital syphilis and how we can address this rising problem, we have Dr. Erica Hayes joining us on the podcast. Dr. Hayes is a professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and is an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hayes. Thank you, Dr. Lockwood. So happy to be here. Great. Well, I have a little bit of a scratchy voice, as you can hear today, so I'm really glad that I have an expert like you to do most of the talking. Now, I started off with some stats about the scope of the problem in Pennsylvania, but can you tell us more about these rising rates and why are we seeing more syphilis now? Certainly. So I think, first of all, what we need to realize is how incredibly transmissible syphilis is from mother to infant. It's extremely efficient. So typically 60 to 100% in the setting of either primary or secondary syphilis during pregnancy. And it actually increases the later in pregnancy that the woman acquires syphilis, which is why it's so important that we do our third trimester testing as well as our testing at delivery. And even mothers who have early latent syphilis, so maybe have acquired syphilis a few years before her pregnancy, will still have a transmission rate as high as 40%. And so the risk of transmission is very high when someone gets syphilis. So that's one reason that we're definitely seeing it. The other, I think, really is kind of an underlying accessing of testing as well as health systems infrastructure that has impacted things as well. And I think most people realize that the public health system in the United States as a whole, prior to COVID hitting us in 2020, was really stretched pretty thin as far as resources and work go. And when COVID came, many of those jurisdictions became completely overwhelmed, which means that a lot of the services that they did regularly, such as, for example, STI clinics and testing and tracking that data and really trying to drive down rates, unfortunately got put on hold as we were drinking from the hose that was COVID. Mm -hmm. And so I think we had, you know, basically our public also, you know, it was COVID, people were not going out, they weren't seeking care for minor conditions or seeking care for sexual health. And so that put us in that situation. A lot of our STI clinics, unfortunately, either had to close or did not have staffing and some closed permanently in some areas as well, making it harder for a lot of groups to access that care, particularly if you don't have a primary provider. For a lot of folks, that can be a really good setting for them to get care for this and really help us 
decrease the rates of STIs as well. So I think all of that, you know, rolled together, unfortunately, into the perfect storm of bad timing, as well as dealing with a pathogen that's incredibly, incredibly effectively transmitted congenitally as well. And so I think it's also important to realize this isn't just a Pennsylvania issue. This is something we're seeing on a national level. So national data is up to date now through 2021 for syphilis. And if you compare back to 2017 to 2021, we've seen a 73% rise in cases of syphilis and our cases of congenital syphilis have tripled. And mind you, this doesn't even factor in the data that is yet to be complete from over the pandemic, but almost every jurisdiction will tell you their numbers for syphilis, as well as all other STIs, have really skyrocketed. Wow, that's really fascinating. As you said, the perfect storm and really highlights why it's so important that we're talking about this today. Now, one of the things as a primary care pediatrician that I think is really important for us to be aware of is that approximately 60 to 90% of live-born neonates with congenital syphilis are asymptomatic at birth. We'll talk in a minute about what some of the later findings may be, but first, for those who are symptomatic at birth or in early infancy, what are some of the more common findings that we should be looking out for in the newborn nursery and at those early newborn checkups? So you're absolutely right. The vast majority of infants, really, with congenital syphilis, you would never know. Again, stressing that need for us to make sure we're doing our testing and due diligence with mothers and infants. When we think about the early manifestations of syphilis, they really occur as a direct result of active inflammation due to spirochete replication. And for those infants who do have symptoms, it can really be quite a range of findings. So there's the rash, and we'll come back to that because obviously that's a really important one to be able to recognize. But other things, intrauterine growth restriction, so very small babies, you want to think about it. A baby who has non-immune high drops would definitely be a baby that you'd want to test as well. Any babies presenting with cholestatic jaundice and increased direct bilirubin and evidence of cholestasis can be uh, presentations of early syphilis as well as hepatosplenomegaly to go along with that as well. Babies who may not be moving in extremity well because babies get basically osteochondritis or inflammation of the lining of the bone and they end up not wanting to move their arms or so-called pseudoparalysis mm-hmm. is a finding that we can see there as well. Lymphadenopathy in a newborn, I think most pediatricians recognize that's not a super common thing you see. And that can also be a manifestation that we see in this age group, as well as edema and then the classic snuffles. So very, very exuberant rhinitis to the point that it can be blood tinged even as well. You know, if you were to say you didn't recognize a child had symptoms and you were looking at blood work, you might see hemolytic anemia or thrombocytopenia. And you can also see the conjugated direct hyperbilirubinemia that I mentioned as well. And usually you're going to see these in the first two to eight weeks of life. Great. There's a lot there for us to keep in mind that is stuff that we don't see very often, fortunately. So things that should raise those red flags to think about syphilis. Now, you mentioned the rash. I want to talk about that because the rash can be present at birth. It more often appears over the first few weeks. But newborns have so many different rashes. So what makes this rash stand out? So there's a classic rash of syphilis, and I'm going to mention some variations because unfortunately nothing likes to follow the rules perfectly. But when I think of the classic rash of congenital syphilis, what I think of is a copper or reddish, some people might even call it salmon-colored lesions, that is macular, and you'll find it on the trunk, the buttocks, the thighs, and often on the extremities. So think palms of the hands, 
the feet as well. Usually often a symmetric distribution, it may be a little bit more focused on those extremities as well. It can then evolve from that kind of macular rash that you see there, though, to desquamation. So sometimes could it look like, for example, a moderately bad case of eczema? Think about that in those babies as well. And then it will develop crusting as well. They can also evolve or sometimes just be vesicular bullous lesions as well. You can have mucus patches. So if you see a baby with like kind of mucoid looking rash patches, wet looking rash, that should definitely prompt you to think of syphilis. Tiki things like that are not super common in this. It's been described, but again, not the classic findings you might think of. Some more less common rashes you might think of would be even an EM, almost like a targetoid lesions as well have been described. And of course, then we also think of the condylomalata, which is something we certainly see in older individuals who've acquired syphilis sexually. But you can also see those, this moist kind of flat, hypopigmented macules and plaques that can almost look a little bit warty or verrucous as well. The important thing to remember about all of these rashes is they are contagious. They contain spirochetes. So you want to be wearing gloves. So when I was a resident, I was rule number one is you are examining a baby in the newborn nursery with rash, you need to be wearing gloves mm, because tip. you don't want to obviously get that transmission. Yeah, that's a great tip. So many rashes with syphilis. I remember syphilis being called the great mimicker, right? So lots of different ways that this can present. Now, with that, I remember a lot of interesting jargon from medical school related to syphilis, things like snuffles, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. but also Hutchinson teeth and saber shins. But for those of us who are a few years out from our training, we might need a refresher on these things. So what are some of the findings that we should look out for in the older infant or child and beyond that might be markers of congenital syphilis but show up later on? So I always remember the old quote they taught us from William Osler in medical school about syphilis, which is the physician who knows syphilis knows medicine, (laughs) because it really can affect so many systems when you go through kind of the manifestations that present with this. And so, you know, we've already talked about, you know, the rashes in the short term. You can also develop skin and mucous membrane gummas and even perioral fissuring that you can see in the older infant and child as well. When we think about kind of orthopedic changes, we think about the saber shins, which is that anterior bowing of the shins that you can see on x-ray. You think of the clutton joints, which are your symmetric painless swelling of the knees. They're moving around fine. They just have kind of bilateral swollen knees for those patients. Other orthopedic things, you think of the frontal bossing, you think of the saddle nose deformity that they can develop as well, and they can also have very prominent maxilla as well. Neurologically, you think about obviously intellectual disability and developmental delay. Cranial nerve palsies really should always prompt you to think of syphilis. So specifically sensory neural hearing losses and changes in vision. And of course, we all remember that old Hutchison triad, right, which is sensory neural hearing loss, interstitial keratitis, so also involving ocular systems as well. And then the Hutchison teeth, which are those hypoplastic notched permanent teeth, which tend to be in uh, the position of the upper central incisor. Other things that you also want to think about, other eye involvement besides the keratitis can be secondary glaucoma and corneal scarring as well. So there's just, there's so many things that you can find and look for with congenital syphilis. And again, also those things we talked about earlier, like the cholestasis and jaundice and things like that, those can also still also show up later. So you still want to be thinking about things like that as well. 
Wow, you brought me right back to medical school. So thanks for that review. (laughs) Not that I really wanted to go back to medical school, but it was a good refresher. (laughs) So let's talk about how we make the diagnosis now. So let's start with those infants who are born to a mother who tested positive during pregnancy. What testing is needed in this case? So the key thing is that you need both an RPR on the mother as well as the infant at delivery. And so just to strike that drum, I know we're not OBGYNs necessarily listening to this podcast, but the testing in pregnancy is really so critical. Mm -hmm. And really, our mothers should be being tested when they enter into care. They should be tested in the third trimester, usually recommended at 28 weeks so that we have time to treat successfully before the baby comes. And then also, again, at delivery, again, recognizing how efficiently transmitted it is in that third trimester if mother were to acquire syphilis during that time. And so with those RPRs, that really, you know, tells us the diagnosis of if mom has syphilis, where she is in her disease. So if she's been fully treated, we would expect to see at least a fourfold drop in her RPR. And so that would tell us if in combination with her having documented appropriate therapy, and it has to be penicillin for moms. There's no data on any other drug for preventing congenital syphilis in a pregnant individual. And she has to have completed four weeks therapy prior to the delivery. And if it has all those factors, it really impacts what we need to do for the baby and how much extensive kind of further evaluation we need to do. Great. Now, let's say we have a child older than one month and we have clinical concern for syphilis. What testing should we do at this time point? Similarly, you do want to do the RPR again. And I think it's important to recognize, and I think some people forget, that can you have a baby end up having congenital syphilis when mom has normal testing for syphilis at delivery? You can. It is described. It is rare because you basically are in the situation where mom is kind of still mounting that RPR response, has transmitted to the baby, but still doesn't actually have a positive RPR titer herself. So the testing for the baby is still going to be RPR testing. Now, if we have a high suspicion, perhaps mom develops symptoms later, you may want to actually test that baby three months on just to make sure they have not mounted that RPR response. And I I should probably just mention with the RPR testing, obviously, if that's positive, you're going to confirm that with a fluorescent treponemal antibody test because you can have false positive RPRs for many reasons viral infections, some collagen vascular diseases, and in fact, in some individuals, pregnancy itself may be the trigger for a false positive RPR. But then you get the fluorescent treponemal antibody to confirm the test. If you don't mind, I do also just want to mention a new test strategy that people may be seeing out there, which is called the reverse algorithm that people may be hearing more about. And in that, rather than starting with the classic RPR testing, what they do is actually they start with a fluorescent treponemal antibody. So they start with the FTA test. And then obviously, you can imagine you hopefully will have a lot less positive FTAs than you will RPRs. Mm -hmm. And so then they go back and get the RPR test to confirm. And of course, if that RPR were negative, negative, then the question is, what's going on there? And then you have to confirm with a different treponemal antibody. But that is pretty rare to have a false positive in that situation. Great. Thanks for clarifying all of the testing algorithms. Now, once we have an infant who has congenital syphilis, what other workup do we need to do to determine the extent of organ involvement? Does every infant need the full workup or is this kind of stratified by risk of congenital syphilis? For example, an infant born to a mother who was treated versus one who was not. 
Yep. It definitely is stratified by risk. And so when we think of the categories, we think of our kind of proven or highly probable genital syphilis, we think of possible, and then we think of those kids where it's really not likely to happen. And so again, the factors that go into that is documenting whether or not mom was appropriately treated with meaning penicillin and had completed therapy four weeks prior. And we really want to have that truly documented. Word of mouth is not enough. We want to have a written documented record of the dates that mom got the dosing and to confirm that the dosing was correct also as well. And so once we have that, we have the timing of when she completed her therapy. And then we have the RPR titers on mom and baby to compare to determine the fold change mom has had since treatment, as well as the ratio of mom's RPR to baby's RPR. And ideally, we want to see baby's RPR be fourfold lower than mom, although if mom has a very low titer, you may not be able to achieve a fourfold drop just because if mom's one to two, you're not going to be able to get a fourfold less than that. So those are the factors that really go into being able to stratify by risk. And so babies that have probable or confirmed congenital syphilis, they would need to have a CBC with differential, again, looking for the thrombocytopenia, the anemias that sometimes can accompany that as well. We want to do a spinal tap to look for neurosyphilis in these babies. And you want to do your normal CSF protein, glucose, cell count, but you also want to add a CSF VDRL onto that specimen as well. You can do a CMP. We're mainly interested there in the transaminases and the bilirubin for the things that we've talked about previously. In addition, most providers would also recommend you do long bone films, chest x-ray. Rarely you can have a pneumonic or pneumonia component to congenital syphilis as well. And then neuroimaging, you can certainly start with a head ultrasound. If that head ultrasound is normal and the LP is reassuring, you probably don't need to go any further. However, if you have confirmed neurosyphilis in the baby and or you have abnormal head ultrasound or neurologic findings, you may need to go further and do MRI imaging for those infants. You'll want to do an eye exam. We mentioned the keratitis and eye complications that you can see. You can also see those in congenital syphilis as well, although it is less common. And then you also want to make sure you get a hearing test because, again, sensorineural hearing loss is a complication you can see in congenital syphilis really from the beginning through the older child as well. I'm also just going to put a plug out there that, you know, for our moms who are at risk for getting congenital syphilis, they're at risk for getting other STIs and infections. So you'll want to make sure you consider doing all of that testing and particularly HIV testing because that is an absolutely treatable disease. And you'll want to make sure that both mom and infant have gotten that testing for a baby with congenital syphilis as well. Great. Yeah, great points and really good overview there. Now, as you mentioned, the treatment of congenital syphilis is rather straightforward with penicillin G. For us in primary care, though, after a baby's been treated, what surveillance or serologies in follow-up are needed so that we can make sure, one, that treatment went well and that there are no long-term effects? Absolutely. So the treatment is absolutely straightforward. I do just want to reiterate a point that our mothers and our babies have to get penicillin for the therapy for their syphilis, because that's really where our data lies. And in a pregnant mother who has a penicillin allergy, this is absolutely an indication for desensitization, because for a pregnant individual, 
alternate therapies with penicillin do not count as effective congenital Mm -hmm. therapy for baby in utero. So you have to give them penicillin. I will just mention, just so people are aware, there is actually now a bicillin shortage in the United States that probably won't get self-sorted out until late this year or early next year. And bicillin is really now needs to be prioritized for our pregnant individuals as well as infants with congenital syphilis. So just to put that out there so it's on people's radar. Mm -hmm. So for following up syphilis infection, really the key thing is to make sure that the syphilis infection is resolved. So the RPR in the infant should be repeated every two to three months along with careful physical examinations until you've documented that it's gone negative. So remember your RPR will return to negative, although occasionally just come to a very low level and become serofast. Whereas your fluorescent antibody, that's going to stay positive until they either lose the maternal antibody or if they truly had congenital infection themselves, they will have that be positive potentially the rest of their life. And so that way you can monitor potentially for reinfection or incompletely treated infection by a change in the RPR. Most infants, if you're doing those RPRs every two to three months, you should see them become negative by six months of age. And if they are not negative by six months of age, then a repeat evaluation by an infectious disease specialist is recommended. And in fact, if that RPR is not negative by six months of age, usually you would need to potentially do repeat CSF sampling as well and potentially retreatment. Fortunately, it's pretty rare that that happens. And I will say if you have an infant who's had a normal exam, is developmentally on target, and the RPR has become negative by six months of age, you do not need to do a repeat LP, which is a relative change in the last few years in the Red Book recommendations. Well, you better believe we're going to be calling you if that happens. So um, if we're getting those positive RPRs for that long, you'll be hearing from us. But that's really helpful to know the time course of when you would expect that to normalize. So we started this discussion with talk about the scope of this problem. Let's talk about prevention. We aren't OBGYNs, obviously, but we do see lots of sexually active teen patients. So what messages should we share with them about syphilis and how often should we be screening our teens? Well, I think, first of all, I think a lot of our youth, a lot of STIs, particularly syphilis and HIV, they're just not on their radar. They think it's happening to someone other than them. They're thinking, oh, it doesn't happen in young people like me. It's the older adults who have these issues and problems that they're passing back and forth. So I think, first of all, having these conversations with these kids that these things are out there and that they are at risk is incredibly important because I know it's hard conversations and not all of our adolescents get those kind of conversations from their parents. And so sometimes we have to try and fill that gap. Just to cite, so um, the CDC does this wonderful thing called the Youth Behavioral Risk Survey and collects data on a continuous basis. And Philadelphia is actually one of the cities where they collect data to see what are adolescents doing as far as potentially risky behaviors and also some non-risky behaviors and seeing what's out there. And we know for the city of Philadelphia, for example, that by high school graduation, greater than 50% are sexually active, Mm -hmm. the minority of them are consistently using barrier protection in sexual acts. But we also see that less than 20% report that they've had any STI testing. Mm -hmm. We think we need to be doing better about really thinking about testing these folks. You know, the, the CDC STI guidelines, I would 
put a plug out for them. They're really a great place to start. And I think certainly we know we need to be screening our sexually active adolescents and young adults for HIV. We need to be screening them for syphilis. We need to be screening them for gonorrhea and chlamydia, particularly now knowing we have such an increase in our region, right? So we know that our epidemiology now, right, is really high right now. Um, Frequency-wise, I would do those at least annually as well as with every new partner that they have or if they have a new STI diagnosis, that should prompt retesting as well. And I do want to also put a plug out there that, you know, ideally we would only target testing and screening the kids that tell us they're sexually active. But I think we all know teens are not always completely forthcoming regarding their sexual practices. It's kind of a hard conversation to have with a person who is still not necessarily super close to you and Mm -hmm. and your pediatrician. So I do think there is a case to be made for STI screening being offered really in a universal approach, particularly when you're in an area as we are now of high and rising prevalence. And again, so this means HIV testing, this means syphilis testing, this means gonorrhea and chlamydia testing, and ideally triple testing so we don't miss those STIs in the rectum or in the throat as well. Great. Yes, so important, as you mentioned, to have universal screening because we don't always know who's sexually active and we are seeing such high rates and rising rates in our teens. So prevention, prevention, prevention. Thank you for reminding us all of the different ways that syphilis can present. Do your RPRs, give penicillin, and do those follow-up tests to make sure that babies stay negative. So thank you so much for this really comprehensive overview of syphilis, particularly congenital syphilis. We appreciate that. And thank you for letting us know about this really kind of hot topic right now in not only Philadelphia, but as you mentioned, nationally. Thank you so much. Happy to join the discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 